0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today by the always smart and experienced head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities, Simon Elliott. So, Simon, last week we said we were still at the end of what had been quite a long and uh, rather depressing run of poor weeks for the equity market in particular. I think the S&P 500 had done seven weeks in a row of falling. But this week, uh, we've had a little bit of a turn for the better. Is that not right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been a better week for investors in general. In fact, I think it's looking as if we're going to see the best weekly advance since mid-March. And as you say, it's been six or seven weeks since we've had a positive week. But just to kind of go through the numbers, certainly for the first four trading days of the week, and we record this on Friday afternoon, the investment company sector is in positive territory. I haven't been able to say that for a while, up 1.2%. That's actually a little bit behind the wider UK market. The FTSE All share was up 2.3% for the first four trading days of the week. Less we lose sight of it though, the investment company sector is still in negative territory for the year, to date down about 16%. And that compares to a rise of about 1% for the UK market. But that's not to be complacent about it. Uh, I mean, discounts are still wide. They've narrowed in a little. I think they started the week about 8%. They're coming to about 7.3%. But there's still a lot of talk about recession risk, particularly in the US this week. The IMF have warned of a global food crisis. There's talk of three decades of globalisation going into reverse. But there is a sense now that authorities are trying to do something to come to terms with this, at least. So The Federal Reserve have made it clear that they're prepared to raise interest rates aggressively, Uh, until at least the autumn. And also in the UK, of course, we've seen uh, Rishi Sunak announce a £15 billion government relief package, uh, which is partly funded by Windfall Tax on the oil and energy companies. But certainly a more positive week. And I think people are starting to look at the numbers as well, the fundamentals. So we've seen good results out for a couple of the Chinese tech companies this week, Alibaba and Baidu, and they both came in beating earnings forecasts and their share prices benefited from
0: that. So, as you say, it's it's good news in the sense that we have seen uh, markets turning up. I think from experience, one has to say that uh, whenever you get a run of poor weekly performance by the stock market, when there's a, a rally, one has to be aware of just it being some kind of technical rally where you get a little bit of a, of a pickup uh, and then the downward slide continues. That's uh, if we head into a bear market or alternatively, this could be the start of a turnaround uh, where sentiment generally improves and uh, the outlook as the markets view has we've seen the worst we don't know where we are yet this is too early to say whether we're at some thing but I have to say for anyone who's a subscriber to the moneymaker circle I've done a video this week in which I talk about what's happened in the markets uh, this year so far uh, including some slides that uh, Simon and I used at the Mellow funds and trust event last week or earlier this week I should say and well it's interesting you' can have a look at these uh, charts that I show and uh, it's probably is time to make our mind up a little bit about where we are in the market cycle, whether we're actually heading down after a rally, or whether we are heading towards slightly better conditions ahead. Do you have any sense of talking to clients, Simon? What uh, what their mood is, or is there, uh, you know, a notable turn in sentiment as far as uh, professional investors are concerned?
1: It's a very good question. Obviously, pretty much all my conversations with clients at the moment, you know, feature. You know, is it too early to get back into the market? Should we take some money off the table? Should we use this rally as a bit of an opportunity to cut positions? I think it's fair to say that opinions are divided. Um, I don't think it's all one way or the other. But I think you know, taking a step back from the day-to-day market moves, I think there are clearly a lot of issues to worry about, and I think there's a sense that many of them are not easily solvable. So in other words, they're going to be with us for some time.
0: Certainly, and inflation being part of that. Just on the Chancellor's package, it's worth mentioning, I think, that uh, there was a story in the Financial Times earlier this week that said that uh, there was a possibility that the windfall tax, or whatever the Chancellor's chosen to call it, on oil and gas companies, uh, whatever euphemism he's come up with for that, might be extended to electricity generators. And uh, that in turn might have an impact on some of the renewable energy uh, companies in the investment trust sector, which have been very popular, of course, as we'll be hearing in a moment. But uh, what's your understanding of where we are as far as that concerned? And is there likely to be any significant impact on the renewable energy companies uh, as far as we can tell at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And we did see a sell-off in some of those renewable energy infrastructure names earlier this week on the back of that article in the FT on that speculation. I mean, stocks like Greencoat, UK, Wind... Definitely took a little bit of a hit on the day. I think they were down about 5 or 6% on the day. They've come back a little bit since then. And actually, I think we're going to come on and talk about fundraising. But we did see Bluefield Solar Income Fund, uh, which was actually out there trying to raise a little bit of money at the moment. That was a placing that was meant to close this week on the 25th of May. And they had to put an announcement out basically noting the FT article and the rumours of a possible windfall tax And as a result of that, they actually decided to put their placing, the deadline, as it were, out to next week. So Tuesday, the 31st of May, and assuming that successful new shares will begin trading on the 7th of June. So, you know, these things do have real implications. Uh, It's not just share price as well, but the possibility of people raising additional capital as well is very much
0: impacted. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think some of the arguments I've seen is that uh, while it's true that um, the renewable uh, trusts are in the business of electricity generation, they're not quite really directly comparable to, and have benefited from higher power prices, or at least expectations of higher power prices in some cases. If there is anything to be done about that, and the government's talking about having a further review of the market to try and make it more efficient, if you like, uh, A, it will take some time before that's decided. And secondly, the likely impact is going to be relatively small, even if it was to happen, I think. But as you say, something to look out for. Let's talk about that fundraising then. We've said so far this year, there've been no IPOs, but there have been some secondary issuance uh, in placings and so on, uh, and primarily in the infrastructure space. So let's talk about the Bluefield Solar Income Fund fundraising, that's ticker B-S-I-F. So it's been extended. But meanwhile, we've uh, also heard from Gresham House Energy Storage Fund, uh, ticker G-R-I-D, and they've uh, also been out raising money.
1: That's right. So they announced this week they were looking to raise up to about £150 million. That was through a placing of new shares at 145p per share. And that's part of a 12-month issuance program of up to 400 million shares, so quite a substantial program. Um, They've basically identified a pipeline of 747 megawatts of battery energy storage system projects in the UK and Ireland. In fact, due diligence is already underway for about 647 megawatts of those projects. So if and when they are fully commissioned, the portfolio, so Gresham House's portfolio, is expected to grow to just little 1,600 megawatts of operational capacity. It's interesting to note that, as I said, they're looking to issue those shares at 145p, or they, that's as they stated, but they also made it clear that their NAV as at the end of June was expected to be at the upper end of 140 to 145p guidance range. So in other words, this will be at a relatively small premium to that NAV as at the end of June. So slightly forward looking, and that compares with an NAV Uh, at the end of March, which was near to about 132p. So lo and behold, we heard that that was in fact successful and they did raise that £150 million. And those shares will begin trading on Tuesday, the 31st of May, and that's traded on the specialist fund segment.
0: So uh, it's interesting. we did speculate why they would be putting out this forward guidance, somewhat unusual thing to do a few weeks back. Did we not suggest there might be a possibility of some fundraising coming along behind? Didn't want to kind of blindside the market, but equally didn't want to go out and raise money at a price that didn't reflect the future NAV that they saw. So that's been successful. Oh, meanwhile, in the Bluefield Solar one, I mean, they're issuing shares at 130p. What are they trading out of the market? I mean, they did dip below that price uh, briefly, didn't they not, I think, um, when that FT story appeared.
1: Yeah. So they're trading at the moment at 130.5p, so just about half a p ahead of that that placing price. So that would suggest perhaps that the market believes that their um, fundraising effort will be successful.
0: Indeed. Okay, so there's a couple of uh, renewable energy fundraisings. Let's talk about HOME REIT, ticker H-O-M-E, which is a trust that uh, essentially is involved in financing and facilitating the creation of homeless accommodation. And it's been remarkably successful. And uh, they've also raised some more money this week.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I think we talked about this one possibly last week. They basically said to the market that they were looking to place new shares targeting about £150 million or so. That's at a price of 115 p per share. And that placing price represented about a 5% premium to their NAV or NAV equivalent at the end of February. They've basically got a, a pipeline. They value about £300 million or so. And so this uh, additional capital was very much targeted to that. So lo and behold, this week they've announced that they're actually oversubscribed And they've raised £263 million. So significantly oversubscribed, I think, would be a better description. And that was obviously the result of very strong investor demand. And the board were happy to issue additional shares. So those shares will begin trading again on Tuesday, the 31st of May. But um, this represents quite a significant amount of capital raised. The last time they came to the market was in September last year. And at that time, they raised £350 million. And I think that was oversubscribed at the time as well.
0: Indeed, it was. So I think we're talking uh, quite a significant pool of money now in this particular specialist trust, I think, getting on for what? I don't know what the market cap is, but the asset's around 800, 900 million, something like that. So what's the attraction of this one? I mean, uh, I guess it's a lot to do with the fact that homeless accommodation is provided by the state, effectively financed by the state. And it's uh, they have access to these inflation-linked um, lease payments. And uh, that's very attractive. And I guess investors are thinking that this is a pretty secure way to get a, a decent income.
1: Yeah, look, I think it probably ticks a number of boxes. And to your point, this is a, you know, a very specialist property play. And we have seen demand for uh, those type of mandates. Obviously, the yield is not unimportant. I've got it on a historic yield of about 3.4% at the moment. Um, it probably ticks a few ESG boxes, to be honest. I think people are very keen to uh, ensure that their capital, their investments, are do the right thing these days and, and then it's inflation linked as well. But just in terms of the size, the point you made earlier, I've got it on a market cap ahead of this launch of about 660 million pounds or so, but with this additional capital, it will take it broadly speaking into probably the kind of FTSE 250 range. That's not to say it will go in at the next review because um, I think that's coming up quite quickly. I think it's coming up next week, but just to give people an idea of the, of the size. So from a standing start, not that long ago, this fund has been very successful in raising that additional capital.
0: Indeed it is. It's certainly a theme for the moment, one could say, uh, for many reasons. That's the fundraising. Let's talk about uh, some results now. First up is uh, Majedi Investments, uh, ticker M-A-J-E. Majedi has been in the news a little bit because uh, it's recently been uh, taken over by Lion Trust. The management company has, not this trust, I should say. So tell us what these results look like.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's important to make that distinction. So, Majedi Investments is different to Majedi Asset Management. To your point, Majedi Asset Management was sold to Lion Trust. That deal was completed, I think, on the 1st of April, actually, relatively recently. So, Majedi Investments has got a very rich history, this particular investment trust company. I think it was started back in 1910. You may well remember it, invested in rubber plantations in Malaysia. But it's been an investment trust since about 1985. But these are interim results for the six months to the end of March. NAV total return uh, down about 7.7% in that time, and that compares with an increase of 4.7% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, and not as good, actually. The share price total return down about 12.5%. The revenue per share came in at 2.7p, while the interim dividend was 4.4p. In other words, the dividend was uncovered. But they did have a stake in Majedi asset management, a not insignificant stake, about 17.6%. And they obviously were involved in, therefore, that disposal, that sale to Lion Trust. And they received shares in cash worth just over £16 million at the end of March. That Actually, that was lower than when the deal was originally announced in December last year, about £6 million lower. And I think that was a reflection of the fact that uh, Lion Trust's share price had, had come off quite a bit since that particular time. And actually, that was the main driver of their NAV total return in the period. I think the rest of the, the investment portfolio was relatively low flat, I think down probably about one and a half percent. And it's again worth noting that they invest in the collectives managed by Majedi Asset Management. So now Lion Trust and the board made it clear that they're considering the J.D. Investments, investment strategy going forward and what would be the appropriate range of assets and portfolio allocation. They're going to provide an update to the market later in 2022.
0: Well, I'm not quite old enough to remember when it was launched, Simon, but um, <laughs> I do know it as a uh, it's connection with uh, the rubber plantations. What do you think they might be thinking then in terms of a new investment objective? What do you think might be on their radar? I mean, I should also say that, uh, as you say, land trust shares have fallen very sharply because it's one of these uh, very popular growth trusts which uh, have taken a real hit in the market sell-off. Uh, so the timing of the deal, for the Majeli point of view, perhaps isn't been ideal, <laughs> because the value of the shares which they're getting in return have fallen quite substantially since the deal was agreed. On the other hand, you could argue the only way from here is up, but uh, we'll find out about that. Uh, but what do you think might be on their mind about the future investment objective?
1: It's an interesting one. I mean, it's worth noting that the Barlow family who were involved in, the, I think, the rubber plantations back in the day, they still own, I think it's 54% of the investment trust. So you could describe it as a family office. So clearly the Barlow family do have a significant interest in it. And William Barlow is the CEO of Majedi Investments. So I think it will ultimately come down to what works for the family and obviously their wider shareholder base as well. In the past, they've been reasonably entrepreneurial. They've, they've backed Majedi Asset Management. They've backed other uh, investment firms as well. So they may have a few thoughts in that direction so, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. It's not the largest investment trust. It's got a market cap of about £105 million or so at the moment.
0: Yes, I was just double checking the Lion Trust share price. And uh, it's interesting, I mean, I used to own some shares in this fund myself. Been a great performer over many years, very uh, successful fund management house and uh, grown a lot by acquisition, uh, very entrepreneurial management. Uh, but it has taken a bit of a beating since last autumn. It's more than half the shares in Lion Trust since then, along with particularly. Uh, AIM stock growth shares. So that's going to be interesting. And we can uh, talk maybe a little bit later about uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust, which is one of the trusts that Majedi Asset Management is responsible for looking after. Next, let's go to uh, Caledonia Investments, ticker CLDN, which is another former family office, I suppose one could say. How have they been performing?
1: Yeah, so they had a good set of results actually this week. So these were final results for the year ended 31st of March. Their NAV total return was up 27.9% in that 12-month period, and that compared to a rise of 13% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, actually performed even better, up 36.5%. And they also increased their total dividend. That was up 3% year-on-year to 64.8p. And if that wasn't enough, they declared a special dividend, or rather the board recommended it, it's obviously subject to shareholder approval, of 175p. That's going to cost the investment trust £95 million. And really that special dividend reflected that they enjoyed a couple of very strong realisations in that 12-month period. And that was really what kind of drove the NAV. So just to remind people, Caledonia Investments, you're right. There is a a strong family interest in this one. I think the Kaiser family owned It's about 48, 49% is my recollection, but effectively the investment portfolio has three distinct legs. There's a kind of quoted equity pool. That was about 30% or so of assets at the end of March. Um, There was a private capital pool and that was about 28% of assets. And then there's a funds portfolio as well. And they also had a bit of cash as well as they hit that year end. But they did see a couple of very strong realizations from that private capital pool. So Deep Sea Electronics, uh, they saw net proceeds of that one from about £242 million and a company called Bioagilitex, maybe, they uh, pronounce <laughs> it, uh, realising about $183 million. So they, they did make a reinvestment in that one. So they obviously have decided to return a bit of cash as part of that to shareholders. Um, and it's worth noting at the end of March, they were sitting on about £341 million of cash so they could certainly afford it. Though when we did catch up with the investment team there, They were clear that they were quite happy to have a bit of what they call dry powder at this stage, given the market outlook. Probably the other key thing to note as well is that Will Wyatt, who's been the CEO of this one since July 2010, uh, he's going to take a step back at the AGM in July. Um, I think he's actually going to remain on the board in a kind of more non-executive role. And he will be succeeded by Matthew Masters, who's been part of the investment team for quite a few years, actually. So um, continuity is very much the watchword there.
0: So that's good performance, but this one uh, typically trades at quite a wide discount, often the case when you've got these uh, family offices or developments of family offices where there's a big stake held by the f- original family. What's been happening to this one in terms of the discount and its performance? Well, how has it been performing in, the, shall we say, the 12 years since Will Wyatt's been in charge? But uh, let's look at the 10-year numbers, for example.
1: Yeah, I haven't got the 10-year numbers exactly to hand, but I can tell you the five-year NAV total return numbers, they're up 66%. That compares with a rise of 21% for the FTSE All Share, though the FTSE World Index would be up about 60% in that period. I mean, in terms of the discount, you make a good point. I mean, I've got them on about a 26% discount at the moment, and certainly over the last 12 months, they've averaged about a 23% discount. There's obviously a range around that. Um, So it does trade on a relatively wide discount. It it sits in the flexible investment subsector, which alongside, I mean, there's a whole bunch of names in there, you know, capital gearing, rougher personal assets that we talk about quite a lot. But I think that's a reflection of the fact that they can invest in quite a flexible way. But it does have quite a high equity exposure in there. So probably something like a RIT Capital Partners would be a a more obvious comparison.
0: Yes, I did just catch the 10-year numbers, uh, actually, so... Just to show that I don't not totally idle here. So the share price total return over ten years, according to the AIC at least, is about 280%, and the NAV about 235%, which is obviously a pretty creditable performance. I don't suppose the Kaiser family are too unhappy about that, uh, and nor indeed are the other shareholders. I'm sure. I mean, you must have met Will Wyatt and his successor. What sort of people are they? What? Uh, how would you assess them? Where do they come from?
1: Uh, so I've known Will for, for quite a number of years, and yes, he's a very experienced investor. And I think when he came on board, Caledonia in, in you know twenty ten, there was a kind of job of work to do. I think he's evolved the story on. As I mentioned, they have these kind of three distinct legs now. I think at probably at one stage in its history, Caledonia was probably a little less focused, if I can put it that way. And I think Will's kind of simplified the offering, and, and uh, as I say brought a little bit of a focus to it. But I think it's the kind of the private capital element that is the real differentiator here. They've done very well on the fund side as well, it's worth noting, and they've backed a number of US and uh, Asian, particularly Chinese funds, that perform very, very strongly. But I think it's those kind of private capital deals, uh, which is quite a concentrated subset of the portfolio. So one of their big holdings at the moment is Seven Investment Management, that people may have heard of. Uh, They've also got holdings in Stonehenge Fleming and Cook Optics, uh, and they all seem to be going reasonably well at the moment. But their kind of investment approach, particularly on the capital side, is very much the idea of taking a very long term view, not necessarily chasing these kind of highly valued tech orientated businesses. Their kind of plays being more uh, cash generators, sometimes a little bit out out of favor uh, and being quite discerning as well. So at the moment, as I mentioned earlier, they're quite happy to to sit on a bit of cash. I mean, Matt Masters has been part of the story since I'm going to say about 2006, quite a few years. So as I mentioned, continuity is the word.
0: Indeed. And uh, that's often another feature of these uh, particular type of investment trusts. So I think it is the best performing investment trust in the flexible investment sector over 10 years. But that is partly because, as you say, it's not directly comparable to most of the others in what it does. Uh, And it's certainly a little bit ahead of uh, RIT Capital Partners. Interesting one, that one, worth looking at. Let's move on and talk about UK investment trusts now. And we're going to start off with Edinburgh Investment Trust, ticker EDIN. This one is one that I think in 2020 was... uh, handed over to Majedi to manage and um, it's produced some annual results for the year to the 31st of March. That's right.
1: And and not a bad set of results. The NAV total return was up 14.1%. That represented an outperformance of the FTSE All Share Index, which was up 13%. Though in share price total return terms, they're up 10.6%. So they were underperformed in share price terms. And they did buy some shares back in that 12-month period, about 1.1 million. But more encouraging news on the revenue per share... That was up 38% year-on-year year to 22.4p. That compares with total dividends of 24.8p paid. So in other words, it's uncovered. It's all. It's about 90% covered, but the gap is closing year-on-year. Year. So last year, the dividend came in at 24p. So what worked for the manager? So this is James Dupper, now of Lion Trust, but formerly Majedi Asset Management. Well, what worked were things such as Anglo-American BAE Systems, Morrisons, Newmont, Centric and Tesco, while detractors included Mondi, Hayes and Weir, and actually not holding Glencore acted as a negative factor. But it was good to catch up with James this week and and talk through the results. I mean, I think you can see a lot of value opportunities in the UK market at the moment, but that said, I think he's quite happy. His net gearing, for instance, was 4% at the end of March. And I think, again, he's quite happy to have that little bit of dry powder up his sleeve. On that front, it's worth noting that the fund's very long term, £100 million debenture, which had a Cuban of 7.75%, which has been a bit of a millstone for a number of years, that's actually been repaid in September. And they've already pre-arranged replacement debt for it. So their blended average interest rate will drop to 2.44% going forward. But yeah, it's been a couple of years, really. I think 26th of March, James took responsibility for the portfolio and it's outperformed the all share in that time. And obviously, structurally, it's moved on as well. But I think the idea is, and they made this point in the results, that now they're part of the Lion Trust stable. They really want to use Lion Trust's kind of marketing muscle to spread the word on this one and and set out exactly what they're trying to do with it.
0: Yes, I think we've talked about the fact that Lion Trust did try to launch their own uh, investment Trust and didn't get that one away, it didn't raise quite enough money to justify or well, at least what they felt to justify uh, the launch of that. That was in uh, more of the sustainable growth uh, strategy they have. Uh, this Investment Trust used to be managed by Mark Barnett, one of a couple managed by Mark Barnett in Vesco, and they took over, as you say, in March 2020, I think, which was not exactly a good point to take over in, in terms of it was right in the, well, in, the, in the throes of the pandemic sell-off. But uh, you reckon they own a decent job since then?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, talking to James, I think he kind of echoed what the chairman said in the statement that it's been, quote, an encouraging start. And I think, as I said, they've outperformed in that period, in that two years, three months, whatever it is, since they've taken over and they've kind of moved things on. I think addressing some of the structural issues like repaying that debenture uh, that's coming up for maturity, as mentioned, in September um, and changing the portfolio around, I think that's all to the good. But it's still trading on a bit of a discount. I've got it today on about a 4% discount or so. Um, and it's got a yield on a historic base of about 3.8%, although obviously the hope will be, now that they're starting to see this pickup in revenue per share, that they'll be able to, and in fact they have even in this year, they've grown that dividend, but they'll hope to
0: kind of move that up in time as well. Yes, so they're yielding about 3.8%, but not 100% covered at the moment, at least not yet. Okay, that's an interesting one. So that's in the UK equity income sector? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So that again, generally, that sector has been doing reasonably well uh, in the current market conditions. Let's talk about Shire's income. Not quite the same sort of vehicle. Perhaps you could explain what that one does. A ticker SHRS. And they've also had annual results for the same period.
1: Yeah, the same period. And, and, and a slightly different story here because in NAV total return terms, they underperformed. So they were up 11.4% compared with a 13% rise for the FTSE All Share Index. However, in share price total return terms they were up they outperformed they were up 18.4 percent in terms of their earnings per share they were up about 15 percent to 14.2p and their total dividend came in at 13.8p in other words it was covered and that was up four and a half percent year on year but it's worth just pausing there probably and just making clear that shire's income although it sits in the uk equity income peer group it's a bit of a hybrid vehicle so at the end of march 76 percent of the portfolio is invested in equities and 24% in preference shares. It's part of the Aberdeen stable. Ian Powell and Charlie Luke, or Charles Luke, are responsible for this one. And in terms of the names that performed and, and those that didn't, actually not dissimilar that you'd expect to see for those kind of managers. So key contributors included BHP, Diversified Energy, Total, SSE, Telecom Plus, the including Ashmore and Countryside properties. Again, they didn't hold Glencore Uh, and in fact, Anglo-American and Shell, and that
0: proved a detractor as well. And so how does it compare to the other Aberdeen uh, trusts? There must be some other Aberdeen trusts in that sector, are there not? Yeah, there are a few, actually. We've got
1: Aberdeen Equity Income, which is Thomas Moore's vehicle. Thomas Moore came out of Standard Life, and that's got a slightly different investment approach. You've obviously got Murray Income, and you've got Dunedin Income Growth as well as Shire's Income. So they do have a few names in that
0: UK equity income space. And it's probably not fair to talk about bragging rights, but uh, let's do it anyway, shall we? <laughs> Who's got the better record out of those four over, say, uh, one year or whatever whatever numbers you've got?
1: Well, I've got the five years number. I always think five years is a pretty decent period to look at a manager's track record. I mean, Thomas Moore has had a more difficult period over that five years, so I've got him up 5% on an NAV total return basis, though he's been a little bit stronger of late. It's worth noting, I think his investment approach probably didn't suit the market conditions at various points during that five-year period. Dead Eden income growth up 20%, NAV total return, that compares to about 21% for the all share. Shire's income up 24%. It's like top of the pops here. I'm doing this in reverse order Yes. Uh, over that five-year period. But actually, number one on the hit parade, Murray Income just up 25% NAV total return over that five-year
0: period. And I guess the manager of Murray Income is also uh, one of the joint managers of Shire's. Is that right? That's right, Charles Luke. Yeah, so you'd expect at least some similarity there. Very good. And is there a big difference in the yield? Just uh, double-checking that, because that might be one of the factors, of course, that's influencing this.
1: That's a good point. So, I mean, there's a range. I mean, Murray Income, Shires Income, they're both about 4.9% on a historic basis at the moment. Dunedin Income growth a little bit lower, about 4.4%. But actually, Thomas Moore's Aberdeen Equity Income, you get a little bit more bang for your buck. That's 5.6% yield at the moment.
0: OK, so let's move on and talk about some overseas results now. And we're going to go to BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, ticker BRFI, which I guess has uh, had some exposure to Eastern Europe and might have been affected by what's been going on there. Uh, but tell us about their uh, interim results, uh, same period to the th- well, six months to the 31st of March.
1: Yeah, so in sterling NAV total return terms, they were up 6.1%. That compared to a rise of 13.3 percent for their benchmark index though the MSCI Frontier Markets Index which is different that was down five percent in the period and in fact the MSCI Emerging Markets Index that was off six percent or down six percent in the period. The share price total return came in in positive territory up seven and a half percent and that just reflected the discount narrowing in a little bit but to your point their relative performance against the benchmark did suffer in late February and March of this year. And that was basically as investors aggressively reduced exposure to Eastern Europe. So just to be very, very clear, there was no direct exposure to Russia, but the fund was overweight Eastern Europe. So the biggest detractor was Kazakhstan. In terms of things that did work, well, actually, it was stock selection in the United Arab Emirates. That was the biggest contributor. Uh, A couple of companies there, 30 Globe and Air Arabia did very well for them. And also the revenue return per share That was up. That went up from two cents in the previous six months or the comparable six months to 2.31 cents as well. And they've declared an interim dividend of 2.75 cents. But it's a very diversified portfolio, this one. So if you look at the weightings or the end of March, certainly Saudi Arabia represented about 24 percent. Indonesia, 13 percent. Vietnam, 9 percent, as was the United Arab Emirates and Thailand, 8 percent. And I think the comment was made in the results that they've been increasing exposure to Southeast Asia And that was, interesting enough, on the basis of a pickup in activity and mobility. And I think it's this idea that post-COVID, that those regions would see a pickup in economic activity.
0: In any event, I mean, the idea about owning one of these trusts is it gives you more diversification. It reaches out to further parts of the global equity market that you might not be able to reach otherwise. And uh, to the extent that they move in different directions, then you're going to get some benefit from that as well. Okay, that's an interesting one. I mean, we know that the Jupiter Emerging Frontier Income Trust is going out of business. It's too small to be viable, so the board has decided. But this one is a decent size and will presumably uh, will carry on regardless.
1: Yeah, so it's got a market cap, the BlackRock Fund, of about £240 million. It's Sam Vecht and Emily Fletcher, so an experienced management team. And it's worth noting they have a liquidity event every five years. So Um, there's an opportunity for investors to exit around NAV on that five-year period. So I can't remember off the top of my head when the next one is, but I I think it's probably about three or four years down the track. But there's a reason why uh, this one normally
0: trades quite well. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Henderson European Focus Trust, ticker HEFT, H-E-F-T. They've had interim results for the same period.
1: That's right. And in that six-month period to the end of March, they saw an NAV total return. It was actually down about 3.7%. That compared with a decline of 2.4% for the FTSE World Europe X uk In share price terms, they were down about 5.6%. So the discount obviously widened out a little. In terms of what worked and what didn't, well, on the winners, it was London Energy, Novo Norsk and ASR Nederland, where while detractors were Nokia and Renkat, Acast and Euronext. But a very good investment manager's report, this one actually. So it's John Bennett and Tom O'Hara, so experienced investors. But I thought they gave a really good kind of state of the nation. And one of the comments they made was that the Q1 results season so far has not seen that many margin shocks. But actually, share price movements suggest that the worst is yet to come. What they've done is they've refined, as they put it, their consumer discretionary exposure as a result of the cost of living squeeze, and they've exited a, a number of names in that space. And they're gearing um, well, it was four percent at the end of March, so they brought that down to one percent at the time the results came out. But quite a concentrated portfolio of European equities of probably about forty-five or so.
0: Okay, so let's move on. And now one of the points you made, which I've also covered in the video, is the uh, Quite uh, interesting divergence in performance we've seen so far this year between some trusts have done very well, typically in the uh, resources and infrastructure space, and others have done very poorly, a bit of a look away now kind of feel about them. And I'm afraid the next one is going to fall into that category. This is JP Morgan China Growth and Income, the ticker JCGI. They've had some interim results for six months uh, to the same period, 31st of March. And uh, I think it's fair to say not so good.
1: Yeah, no, it's been a tough period. So, in that six month period, their NAV's total return is down about 30.8%. That compares with a decline of 17.5% for the MSCI China Index. Not quite as bad in share price terms, but still down 26.4%. It's worth noting as well that this investment trust, like a number in the JP Morgan stable, actually has an enhanced dividend policy. So, they paid two dividends of 5.7p in the period. But what worked for them or what didn't? Well, stock selection was the largest detractor, uh, although that was partially offset by sector allocation. Also, gearing was a negative, which you'd kind of expect in a a falling market. So healthcare names had the largest adverse impact, while financials also detracted basically because they didn't own the large state-owned banks. But I thought what was quite interesting on this one, again, reading the investment manager's report. So Howard Wang leads a very experienced investment team there in terms of what they've done. Um, and they made the point that actually their largest holdings haven't really changed in that period, but they have added some names below that. So particularly as they describe them as structural growth names, so in consumer technology, healthcare, and green energy spaces. And in fact, they made the point that their five-year expected return model is now at historical lows. So what does it mean? Well, that would seem to suggest to them at least that we're likely to see a strong and protracted recovery. That's their word, strong and protracted recovery in Chinese equities. They believe that's likely soon. And in fact, their gearing at the end of March sat at 18%. So it's that idea of building up structural growth opportunities. But strangely enough, we also saw an update from Fidelity China Special Situations this week. So that's Dale Nichols, the manager of that one. And he was making relatively similar points, actually, that he thinks there is quite a lot to go for uh, with Chinese equities. I mean, he would probably say that, wouldn't he? But actually, he also has been happy to run his gearing up. So the gearing on that fund is 24% at the moment. So these are not insubstantial weightings for both those investment trusts.
0: So we could interpret that as, as you say, as a sign of confidence that uh, things are going to get better, not as a sign of desperation, sign of confidence that China may be turning around. But it has been a pretty horrific ride on the way down, has it not? After that extraordinary year and the pandemic year, they've been falling pretty dramatically. And uh, Well, give us some of the the scale of the numbers uh, that they're down since their highs.
1: Well, yeah, let's go through. I'll give you some NAV total return numbers over six months, and then I'll give you the five-year numbers as well, just to give it a bit of context. But over the last six months, you're right, it's been very tough. So the JP Morgan China Growth and Income Fund, that's down 38%. The Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust, that's down 38%. The Fidelity Fund, down 40%. Aberdeen, China, well, that changed its mandate relatively recently. That's down 25%. So I think we can ignore that over the five-year period. But certainly when you look at that five-year NAV total return record, the Fidelity Fund's up 14% now, but the JP Morgan Fund is up 40%. And that does represent quite an outperformance of the MSCI China over that five-year period. That's basically flat over that time. So a bit of a roller coaster.
0: Right. So interesting one. I mean, if uh, going back to this idea about whether we're now in a binary sort of phase where things either go up a lot, or carry on down after a rally, what happens in China is going to be very interesting. There could be some money to be made there, as these managers clearly believe. And let's talk about Schroeder Asia Pacific Fund, ticker SDP. Same period, six months to 31st of March 2022. That's right. And they saw an
1: NAV total return again down 4.2%. That compared with a decline of 6.9% for the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Index, in share price total return terms, they were down about 5.2% as the discount widened out a little bit. But basically, Schroder Asia Pacific Fund benefited from being underweight China, particularly internet and healthcare companies. And they were also overweight Hong Kong via financials and real estate. And that proved positive as were investments in Australia and Vietnam. Exposure to Singapore and Taiwan proved a drag, but it's really their positioning in financials and materials that uh, helped their relative performance in the period. And again, actually, the manager of this one, which is Richard Sennett, he took over from Matthew Dobbs, uh, I think about March 2021. So just over about a year ago, I think he took responsibility for this one. But he's looking to take advantage of attractive valuation. He's added names in China and Hong Kong, though not the e-commerce names, it's worth noting. But at the end of March, the gearing was a point 0.1%. So he's certainly not betting the ranch as yet.
0: OK, we can then move on to talk about Schroeder Oriental Income Fund, ticker SOI, which also has interim results, but so uh, this one to the six months, to 28th of February, not the 31st of March. That's
1: right. So a different period. And in fact, a positive set of numbers just. Uh, so the NAV total return was up 0.9%. That compared with a decline of 7.9% for the benchmark. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually down about 0.7% as the discount widened out a little bit. But again, not dissimilar story as you would expect, given that it's the same manager, Richard Sennett, though the portfolio is different to Schroeder Asia-Pacific. But Schroeder Oriental Income certainly benefited from being underweight China and actually being overweight Singapore worked well for the fund in this period. They've also made some changes to their fees as well. It's one of the few investment trusts
0: left now that seems to have a performance fee and they've rejigged that a little bit, but that still stays in place. And so what's the difference between these two trusts? There's two Schroeder trusts. One is an equity income trust, I guess, and the other one is just total return, is it?
1: Yes, that's right. Schroeder Asia Pacific, I think that was launched back in the 90s, very much on a total return tack. And the Schroeder Oriental Income Fund, which I seem to remember was launched in 2005, that year of that Ashes victory, that's uh, very much on the equity income leg. And as I said, managed by the same manager. Uh, and there will be some overlap, but distinct portfolios as well. So I think schroeder Orientals always had a weight into Australia, which is not uh, an area that, historically at least, Schroeder-Asia-Pacific has played that strongly.
0: And obviously that explains your reference to the cricket in that uh, context, obviously. What other connection would there be between the uh, the Orient and the Test match cricket Let's move on and talk about uh, specialist trusts now. And we're going to start off with chrysalis. What should I say? I don't know what word to describe. What adjective to describe? Perhaps I'll pass on that one for the moment. <laughs> been in the news a lot. Anyway, let's put it that way. And interim report for the first quarter. So this is in uh, what is called sort of growth capital sector. So kind of pre-IPO stuff, I think, uh, fair to say. And uh, tell us how they've done. It hasn't been that good a period for them, I think.
1: No, it's been a really tough period. And to be fair, we talked about this one a few weeks ago, probably about a month or two ago now, because they kind of gave us a little bit of an update ahead of time. So um, just to give us an insight into what's going on. But this is, as you say, the interim report for the first quarter of the year. The NAV was down 11% in that time. I mean, it's not all bad news. So there's a couple of portfolio companies that are doing okay. So Brandtech and Starling Bank both saw an upward revision in valuation. Klarna, was the big hit. And we, I think we were aware of that. Anyone kind of following the business news at the moment would know that Klarna has a few issues to address. And Chrysalis Investments have wrote that holding down in line with 30 billion US dollars valuation. So I think there's another funding round imminent on Klarna, which is what they're trying to reflect. They've also got a couple of listing holdings. So these were companies that they originally invested in when they were private. They've now come to the market. So THG was down 60% in the share price terms during the period. And Wise was also down 35%. But since the end of March, uh, they've been involved in in a fundraise for Starling Bank. They put £10 million more into that particular investment. And they did get a bit of money back as well on a couple of bits and pieces. So Embark Group was sold to Lloyds Bank, which we already knew. So that was the update to the market. I mean, Chrysalis has had a tough year. I mean, certainly when I last looked, they were down about 40 47% year-to-date, in share price terms. And it's obviously a very concentrated portfolio. So, Starling at the 19th of May, at least, Starling was the largest weighting in the portfolio. That was 21% and Clarna at 19%, but very focused as well. I mean, I think they only had about 17 holdings at that stage, including three listed companies.
0: Indeed, well, it looks like with the benefit of hindsight, they would have been a bit smarter to sell a few more shares in those THG and Wise uh, ones that uh, IPO'd and came to market and have since been hammered. Interesting situation there. I guess the ripples from the uh, the performance fee issue probably still hang around that one and probably is going to remain so for a period. Uh, let's talk about Cordiant Digital Infrastructure. Ticker CORD, one of the relative newcomers to the investment trust sector in the digital space. Tell us about uh, their performance.
1: Yeah, so these were preliminary results from the 4th of January 2021 to the end of March this year. In that time, their NEV per share increased by about 8, 8 8.4%. In share price terms, a little bit better. Actually, share price total return came in at 10.3%. But they have raised since their launch um, gross proceeds of £795 million. And that's all been substantially deployed or committed. They've got three assets in Europe and the US. And they gave a few more details around that. Also, in terms of the dividend... Initially, they were talking about paying a 1p dividend during this period. Obviously, this is an investment ramp-up phase. They've actually increased that to 3p. And the guidance for their financial year for 2023 is that they look to pay 4p. But they made the point that adjusting for acquisitions, the pro forma 2021 portfolio EBITDA, so the kind of profits that the portfolio is expected to generate, comes in about £95 million. And that offers dividend cover about 4.6 times. But they also noted that they have a pipeline of opportunities in Western Europe, the UK and North America, valued about €3 billion. So quite a substantial pipeline.
0: And there's a couple of these digital uh, infrastructure trusts. The other one is uh, digital nine infrastructure. uh, And they've held up pretty well, I think, during the the current market sell-off, perhaps as you'd expect. Just to remind us how those two compare in terms of the yield. One of them has got a higher yield than the other, I think.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of size, initially, Cordient Digital Infrastructure has got a market cap of about 827 million. Digital 9, a little bit ahead of it, 926 million market cap. Just on the dividends, it's still pretty early days at the moment because obviously they're they're still kind of building their dividend record. So I think it's probably worth in this particular instance not looking necessarily at the historic dividend record because I, I suspect that won't be a good guide to what they're likely to pay going forward. But, you know, to your point, how they've performed so far, yeah, they've absolutely, they've held up. I mean, over the last 12 months, they're both in positive share price territory.
0: OK, let's move on then and talk about Hickle infrastructure next, also in the infrastructure space, HICL. And they've had annual results uh, for the year to 31st of March. That's right. And their
1: NAV increased by 7.1% in that period. And their share price total return came out at 12.8%. But this is a substantial portfolio now. I think it was valued about £3.3 billion at the end of March, uh, and that was up just short of 10% year on year. I mean, what benefited performance in this particular year is the sale of Queen Alexandra Hospital and also the correlation that the fund has to inflation as well. They made some new investments. They totaled about £110 billion while they did have three divestments as well, which totaled £126 But the earnings per share came in at 19p. They paid a total dividend of 8.25p, and that was one spot five times covered. And the dividend guidance for both 2023 and 2024 is 8.25p, in other words, in line with this current or this most recent financial year. And the board made the comment that they've remained focused on rebuilding cash cover.
0: Um, What's the yield on
1: that one at the moment? So on a historic basis, I've got it on a 4.7% yield.
0: Okay. Let's move on then and talk about Harbourvest Global Private Equity, one of the many private equity trusts which are still trading on a big discount and which people have a lot of divergent views about, whether that's a value opportunity or not. Uh, they've had some annual results, so uh, this time to the 31st of January. Obviously, it takes longer for these to come out. That's right. Yeah,
1: there's always a bit of a lag
0: with the fund of
1: private equity funds as they wait for the valuations to come through, but a very strong... 12-month period for Harbourvest. Their NAV was up 37% during that time. And that really reflected strong exit activity and valuation gains as well. In share price terms, it was even stronger. Actually, they were up 48% in that 12-month period. But they made the point that they saw uh, in terms of the underlying portfolio, and it's a very diversified portfolio, but 555 IPOs and M&A transactions. And that was more than double that seen in the previous year. And a number of IPO exits as well, including Coinbase, All Funds Bank, Monday.com and Unipath as well. Now, what did that mean in terms of cash generation? Well, unsurprisingly, perhaps they ended up in net positive portfolio cash position. So they saw distributions come in about $835 million versus capital calls of about $515 million. So net cash about three twenty. million. But again, a substantial size vehicle now. I mean, their net assets are $3.9 billion at the end of January, uh, and that included $284 million in cash. They've actually increased their credit facility as well. And that's probably a reflection of the fact that their commitments, uh, so primary commitments, increased quite a lot in the year, actually. So I think it totaled $1.4 billion. That compared with just 195 billion in the previous year. And that was really a reflection of the fact during that COVID period, they kind of paused their commitment programme. Obviously, there was a lot of uncertainty at that time. And I think it made a lot of sense, clearly, and just to kind of shore up their balance sheet and, and kind of slow their commitment programme. They've obviously restarted that now and, and probably made up for a little bit, hence that very high level. So what does that mean? Well, at the end of January, they had unfunded commitments that totaled £2.5 billion. so um, substantial amount. But as they point out on a kind of historic basis, that's probably at the lower end of the range. But a very diversified portfolio, I think it's invested in 57 Harbourvest funds. It's also got 16 secondary co-investments. But the top 100 underlying companies represented about 32% of the portfolio at the end of January.
0: So it's a very big beast, and it seems a little uh, ungrateful, if you like, that the market has reacted to uh, you know this year by marking it down to an even bigger discount than before. So what do you think is going on here? If It's got a fantastic long-term track record, uh, did very well last year, and yet the discount keeps widening. Is that just a function that the NAV is out of date? I mean, that must be part of it. The market must be assuming that the NAV might come down uh, as a result of what's happening in listed markets. But uh, uh, how do we explain this kind of phenomenon?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just to put some numbers around that, the discount to the NAV, as we, as it stands at the moment, is about 40% or so at the moment. That compares to an average over the previous 12 months of 24%, so it has been derated. Is there a suggestion that the market believes that NAV is likely to come down? I think we can probably infer that, frankly, but it would have to come down quite a long way to bring it back in line with its kind of long-term average or even its average over the previous five years. So I think certainly if you talk to the, the team at HarbourVest, they'd see that as difficult to justify that level of discount i'm sure that would be their view and and to your point this is quite a substantial vehicle it's a 1.8 billion pound vehicle and the long term performance record is good but it is a fund of funds technically because harbourvest global private equity makes primary commitments to harbourvest who then in turn make commitments to underlying private equity funds so you know there is a layer of costs involved with that and i think that's a problem for some people again The good people at Harvard sort of point to the fact, look at the performance record, don't get kind of, you know, bogged down with the cost. Private equity is an expensive asset class. I think we all know that, but it is a problem at the moment. But look, I mean, clearly we're in a kind of risk-off market environment at the moment. Private equity has been hit harder probably than most sectors, certainly in terms of the kind of absolute level of of discounts. And that's something that we've seen before when we've also seen these periods of market uh, dislocations.
0: Okay, so we'll move on on. We've got a few uh, property results to uh, to quickly run through. We don't tend to take so much time over these as uh, we do on some others. But uh, let's start off with Ediston Property Investment Company ticker EPIC interim results six months to 31st of March.
1: That's right, and their NAV total return came in at 10.1% in that time. The share price total return came in at 10.2%. But the property portfolio, well, that saw an underlying valuation increase of about 11.2%, and that was valued at 239 million pounds at the end of the period. I mean, it's worth noting that this, for, for a number of years, actually, it's kind to of be refocusing the portfolio and very much looking at retail warehouses. And actually, during this period of time, they made uh, a couple of disposals of office, legacy property, and that acted as a, a drag on performance. And actually, since the period end, they've sold, I think they sold their remaining leisure assets as well. So it is now a pure play. So that's very much where they want to get to. I mean, in terms of the rent collection, that came in about 98% in the period, the revenue earnings per share. That was down actually from 2.7p to 2p, but they actually pay a monthly dividend, this one. I think they're running on an annualised basis of about 5p, which isn't quite to their pre-pandemic level. I think that was
0: 5.5p. And so has this one been affected by the kind of fallout from uh, you know Amazon's recent announcement, implying that there might be a bit more squeeze on warehouse space? It doesn't appear to have done very much. Um, but well, they've just focused into this area. Do you think that's uh, going to be a factor?
1: I mean, the rating, and it's on about a 15 16% discount at the moment, is broadly in line with what we've seen over the previous 12 months. So it hasn't been obviously derated on the back of that.
0: Okay, next up is uh, Life Science REIT, ticker LABS, L-A-B-S. This is a very recent newcomer. Is there anything to say here of of any significance? Well, I think the point here is that they've been busy. Uh, I mean, the the actual results are for the six weeks from their IPO
1: to the end of December last year. But it's really the commentary around what they've done with the capital, Uh, and in fact, the kind of the headline here is that they're pretty much fully invested, or they've made various commitments. Again, it's worth just uh, keeping an eye on the updates in terms of the dividends. So. They have a a target yield of 4% based on that issue price, rising to 5% in future years. And they've also put some debt financing in place as well. And actually, they made the first drawdown of that in May. But still very, very early days for this fund.
0: OK, so we can then talk about residential secure income, ticker RESI, R-E-S-I. Same period, interim results, six months to the 31st of March.
1: That's right. And they had an NAV total return of about 2.8% during that period. The portfolio was valued at £375 million at the end of March. And again, I think we talked about this one quite a bit, but they've really built this portfolio out. So it's about 3,233 homes, or it certainly was at the end of March. I mean, rent collection rates are strong, came in at 99% for that period, and they paid total dividends of 2.58p. And that's in line with their annual 5.16p target. But it's worth keeping an eye on, on how much cover... Uh, So in other words, the difference between revenue and dividends. And the commentary is that the fund is on track to achieve full dividend cover in the final quarter of this year.
0: So still recovering a little bit from uh, earlier period indeed. And then finally, Warehouse REIT, ticker WHR, another one which is in a similar sector to Ediston. now anyway. Annual results in this case, uh, year to 31st of March.
1: That's right. And they saw an NAV total return effectively 33.2%. So, uh, you know, a strong period for warehouse REIT. The portfolio was valued at just over a billion pounds at the end of March, and they saw a like-for-like valuation uplift of 19.4% in the period. But yes, a positive update. Their adjusted earnings per share came in at 6.4p. That was up from 5.3p in the previous financial year, and they've paid dividends of 6.4p. So effectively, that dividend was covered, and it was ahead of the target of at least 6.2p. It's also worth noting, I think we might have picked up on this one before, actually, but the shares are currently traded on AIM, but they're due to be admitted to the main market in July. So, again, that's one to watch because on the back of that, there is a chance that it will be included in the FTSE All Share Index.
0: OK, well, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Who knows? You might get another up week in the, in the equity markets. All depends on how this uh, little rally turns out, what it turns out to be. Will we look back as this a significant turning point, or will it be just a bit of a rally in an ongoing bear market? We'll find out. We all have our own views, but we'll find out in due course.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.moneymakers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle. Available now at the website.